everyone. This is Ricardo Colla, Director of Digital Food Science with Ripe.io and the host of this podcast, Know Your Food. In our current series, we are bringing experts from across the food system to discuss food safety and food security in the COVID-19 emergency. In today's episode, we are going to look at the impact on food distribution. And we're going to do so by offering the perspective of James Tyler, which delivers fresh fine food from Australia and New Zealand to China, the country where the pandemic first originated. It's a true pleasure to have with me today, James Hutchinson, co-founder of Jim Styler. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Exciting to be on. Excellent. So uh, just for the audience, um, I just wanted to ask you first uh, uh, if you can tell us briefly about James Styler and their uh, innovative distribution business. Sure. I think probably the best way to introduce our company, James Tyler, is to quickly describe my history and what I've done since leaving school. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will give everyone a good understanding of, of uh, the positioning and the reason and the rationale behind the creation of James Tyler. So obviously I'm the James in the James Tyler. My business partner, Tyler Yeah, is the Tyler. Um, mm-hmm. So after I finished school, I... Um, I went to university and majored in Mandarin at University of Technology, Sydney. And thinking I was pretty good at Mandarin and Chinese, I jumped on a plane and went to Beijing. And as soon as I hopped out, I'd never been to China before, and I jumped into the taxi and I told the taxi driver in my best Chinese, which says, I want to go to Zhongguansun. And uh, the taxi driver looked at me and he had no idea what I, what I just said. So that was a bit of a sobering moment after having learnt Chinese for three years and I was getting you know, A's and, and B's in, um, in my class, you know, doing very well. But what I did is then I moved in um, with a Chinese family into a homestay and stayed with a Chinese family for about six to seven months. And that's, uh, they didn't speak a word of English, so that's when my Chinese really improved dramatically. Yeah. And that was an interesting time in China. That was sort of 2005 to 2010. Well, that particular time with the homestay was 2005. Um, and I started working in the wine industry. So at that time, that was when the wine boom in China suddenly hit. Mm-hmm. And I was working with an Australian wine company at that time. And the whole wine world descended on China at that same time. So any country you know, producing good quality wine came to China at that very one at that same time. So it became incredibly competitive. You know, there was Chile, Argentina, um, you know, the US, all through Europe, Australia, New Zealand. It was an amazing time. Yeah. So what I like to say is, is there's a lot of money made. And for every winner, there were 99 losers. And the reason for that was it was just an immature market. And, you know, China can be renowned and it was well known for its fakes and replicas and um and problems in the supply chain the food supply chain and so um at that time there was a lot of cowboys and a lot of you know people doing you know sort of dodgy tactics to um to make some money so there's a really famous bottle of wine in australia called grange penfolds grange which sells for a lot of money it's one of the best wines in the world and there was a um, statistic at the time that somewhere that one bottle of Grange in China was being reused sort of 40 to 50 times. Wow. <laughs> so that was just amazing. They're just filling it up with cheap Chinese wine and reselling it. So um, 
Tyler, my business partner, was also in the wine industry at that same time. So it was really, really an interesting time. And then we crossed paths a couple of times. And we really were there firsthand and saw how many, you know, all these dodgy tactics. And so when the fresh food boom started happening in, in China, particularly the imported fresh food boom, again, the whole world looked at China and thought, geez, there's this fantastic opportunity in China for imported fresh food. But with our experience and our background, Tyler and I decided to tackle that opportunity from a different angle. And that angle was about transparency and trust mm-hmm. and controlling the supply chain. Um, so actually the first thing we did was create an end-to-end cold chain logistics supply chain, able to take any food or um, you know, beverage from an Australian farm or processing facility through the Chinese border and directly into the hands of the Chinese consumer. And we cover about 90% of the Chinese population. There's a few things in there. I mean, that sounds quite, you know, straightforward, but there's a few things in there that was, is uh, quite unique mm-hmm. is um, we made a strategic decision at the time to bypass the wet markets. So, you know, with our history with the wine, we knew that that's where all the, a lot of the problems take place. Mm-hmm. And once your product enters the wet markets, then um, essentially you've lost total, total control over it. And what happens to it after it hits the wet markets? Um, you know, you've got, you've got no, no yeah. control. So, and interestingly, that's always been our strategy. And then obviously that became, um, you know, an, a point of interest now because obviously the coronavirus originated in a Wuhan wet market. Mm-hmm. So now there's a lot of pressure on China and, and wet markets around the world to to tighten up to, um, or to shut down, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's been really good, good for us. The other thing we did was, you know, we, we identified that um, in terms of food quality, not, not the sort of the fakes and the um, replicas, but in terms of the food quality and where a, a number of other problems take place is actually at the Chinese border. So um, if you think about a, you know, on the, the airstrip, on the tarmac, in the middle of summer, sometimes those tarmacs in China can be, you know, 60, 70 degrees. So if you have fresh produce, you know, um, summer fruits or any dairy or meat or seafood, and it sits on the tarmac, you know, for 15 minutes or, you know, an hour, then you're going to have some serious problems. Same thing in um, the middle of winter can be minus 20 degrees. Mm -hmm. So we really focused on um, making sure that that, customs clearance process was um, was fast and efficient. So what we actually did was we created our own customs clearance agency. So we clear customs now, you know, average time sort of, you know, one to three hours. Whereas I think the average time, you know, if you went through Guangzhou or Shanghai or Beijing would be something like 12 to 16 hours. So we have full control and our, our office is actually at the airport. Um, so we can always walk down and, and help clear customs. So that's the, um, that's the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And that's, I know it's a long, long-winded description of the supply chain, but I think it's, it's useful to see you know, why we've taken that approach. And, and there's been a lot of decisions and strategy behind it. Even though it's taken us longer to get going, I think it's you know, starting to really reap um, benefits for us, yeah. particularly now. But then that's our enabler. We call it that. Our, that's our enabler. And that allows us to tap into consumer trends and where the consumer is because um, Chinese consumers, yeah, they're very trendy. They follow where the hottest new 
channel is or the platform is. So one day they might be buying from Tmall or JD.com. Mm-hmm. And then the next they're on TikTok or um, Pindordor. So it might be the exact same consumer buying the exact same products, but they've just changed where they're buying it. Mm-hmm. So we've got to be flexible and that our supply chain allows us to be flexible and plug into those hot channels. And there's one fascinating um, channel at the moment, which uh, is taken off because of coronavirus, and that is community buying groups. Mm. Is um, it WeChat or? Yeah, they, yeah, so, yeah, they're using WeChat. Mm-hmm. So community buying groups, essentially what's happening is, you know, everyone in China and in and a lot of countries in Asia, they live in big apartment complexes. And so there might be, thousand to five thousand residents in one apartment complex Mm -hmm. these residents are appointing a group leader and then that group leader comes to a company like us james tyler and says i've consolidated a whole bunch of orders from my residents i want one ton of fresh milk delivered here so which is amazing because not only are they getting the power of group buying um so they can get discounts on a group you know a large order but they're also basically eliminating last mile delivery costs. So instead of us sending one bottle of milk to one resident in that apartment complex, which costs a lot of money in last mile mm-hmm. delivery, we're delivering one ton of milk to that apartment complex. So it's just amazing. That's just taken off mm-hmm. since, um, since coronavirus. Yeah. And I mean, it, it makes me think about some of the distributor here in the U S that to change their business model, to try to appeal to, a. Uh, uh, to uh, the, the the consumers here, uh, instead of going to a food service and institution, uh, and uh, uh, there's no such thing as the community buying group yet here. So we are trying to do that in our community amongst friends. But yeah, that's that's definitely something that we uh, uh, should learn from. Um, it's, uh, it's it seems to be a very effective channel. So I wanted to. Um, uh, ask i mean you answered already some of the questions i had but um what would you say are the most relevant consequences of uh, of the coronavirus on on james tyler's operation and on in general on the food distribution industry uh but james tyler's is is pretty unique Uh, so what what were the most relevant consequences yeah so i think I'll, i'll answer that question by firstly sort of talking about the, the, the trends in China and how that affected the trends. Well, it's probably no surprise. I think these trends have been global, but um, specifically for China is, you know, you've got to look at um, consumer trends mm-hmm. and what products they suddenly became interested in. And then you've got to look at channel trends about, you know, where they were buying the product and then what effect that had. Mm-hmm. So from the community, um, from the consumer side point of um, view, is suddenly everybody's locked up. Yeah. in their house and you've got a virus running rampant around outside so immunity the word immunity um, and health they uh, were the hottest trending searches on Chinese social media I think both those words were up over you know two or three thousand percent um, during that time so any product you know sort of immunity or health and dairy meat seafood and fresh or basically any fresh fruit, um, food is, um, you know, where Chinese people believe in it, you know, that's, it's true is, is where you get most of your immunity and health benefits for. So, uh, fresh food sales, uh, ballooned in China. They, um, absolutely exploded. 
So secondly, the next thing is consumers had a lot more time. So whereas uh, China was originally renowned for being a, you know, people were short on time. So on the go, convenience food was, um, was the norm and that's what people mainly had. So individually wrapped products that you just pick up, put in your bag and you jump on the train and go to work. But um, suddenly everyone's got more time at home and cooking is a great hobby to do at home and, um, and waste some time when you're stuck at home. So, so it was a huge shift from convenience and on-the-go ready-made you know, retail packaging, packaging to more sort of loosely wrapped um, wholesale and, and larger style format so that people could um, you know, cook at home. So that was a big, another big change in the consumer. And from, even though China's starting to open up, what we're seeing from the consumer trends point of view is that you know, both health and immunity um, is uh, here to stay, those trends, as well as an increase in cooking from home and buying you know, the whole product instead of a you know, ready-made product. Yeah. And uh, you already a little bit addressed this question, but um, it's, it's about the, the evolution of your business model uh, through the pandemic. Um, again, making the parallel uh, to big food distributions, for example, here in North America, most of their um, revenue is generated through um, food service, restaurants, uh, institutions. Um, uh, did you have to uh, rapidly adapt your business model uh, because of the closure of those uh, institutional channels or is it something that doesn't really affect you? No, that's, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and that leads on, it, you know, leads directly to what we're going to discuss, what I was going to discuss about channel trends. Mm -hmm. So you're exactly right. The vast majority of Chinese uh, fresh food was um, was being consumed in restaurants and takeaway and this you know convenience on the go and then suddenly everybody's at home yeah the big thing is what happened is consumer trust was shattered so mm -hmm. uh, suddenly consumers become very sensitive about where they source their product and how it gets delivered to them uh, obviously coronavirus originated in a Wuhan wet market and over 81 percent of China's fresh food is still bought and sold in wet markets. So there's, uh, and like I said before, there's a lot of pressure to transform those wet markets or close them down or, you know, tighten them up. So if you think about China, because of its scale, it's so huge. If that 81% turns to 80% or 79% or 78%, you're just talking about a marginal change of one or two or 3%. That equates to billions and billions of dollars and millions and millions of tons of food. So a tiny change in China's food supply chain is going to have huge, huge, or oh, tiny change in where consumers are buying their produce from their channel. It's going to have mm -hmm. huge consequences on the supply chain. So what we actually saw is that consumers turn to the place where they trust most because trust was at an all time low. Yeah. So they are turned to the huge, big branded platforms, um, like any platform owned by Alibaba. Mm -hmm. One of them being Herma, which Herma's new um, is, is uh, Alibaba's retail in a bricks and mortar supermarket. And that exploded during, um, during the pandemic and still is. So they, they, they recorded something like a, a 
think a 90 or 95% increase in um, new consumers during that time. So absolutely amazing. So on one hand, you have the huge, big, well-known platforms that did really well. And then the middle players, or the players in the middle, really struggled because they didn't have that purchasing power and they didn't have that brand um, mm. and trust. And then on the other side of the spectrum, it was the individuals that did really well. And that's why these, what I mentioned before, is the community buying groups took off. It's because people trusted their neighbour, you know, their local resident, the convenience store owner at the base of their building, um, or their family, friends and relatives. So WeChat sales, which when you say WeChat sales, that's basically you know, selling through WhatsApp or Instagram or something like yeah. that, where um, you're basically just selling to people you know. So mm -hmm. in private group chats, that also increased by, I think, 35 to 40%. So um, increased by 35 or 40%. So um, yeah, some incredible sort of numbers where it, where it either went you know, to the very big guys or the very tiny individual people. And that's where the consumers were, um, were buying. So, so that's a long way to, to describe like what did that, how did that affect our business is, yeah, well, we've got our enabler, which is our supply chain. Mm -hmm. So that would be really flexible. And then we've just put 100% of our focus on either side of those channels. So we, we now sell to a whole bunch of group leaders and we've, we already sell to a couple of these larger platforms, but recently we've been talking with, with quite a number more of these larger, bigger players. And a lot of these, as I said, a lot of the, the food service and these players in the middle, e-commerce or um, other fresh food players, they're really struggling. So we, uh, we're not really planning to target them at the moment. We'll see what happens, but um, yeah, at the moment it's the, the minuscule side of the market or the huge side of the market where we're focusing. Yeah, yeah. I, I would like to. I mean, it's it, it shows a very uh, a, a great uh, flexibility of your business model and the supply chain. Of course, uh, I'd like to shift to um, that supply chain, and um, uh, one of the topics we want to address is food safety, and so with. Uh, there's clearly no report of transmission of coronavirus to food, but uh, food workers are exposed across the supply chain. There are distancing rules. Uh, some of those factors could lead to a relaxation in the process of certification, the quality processes and the audits. So did you see any impact on safety or on, on the green channel certifications and processes that, uh, that are required for the fresh produce in China? Um, any impact due to lack of resources or uh, any impact that were directly connected with the coronavirus situation? Yeah, of course we saw, um, and I like to call it BC, which is before Corona mm -hmm. and then AC after Corona. Um, <laughs> so before Corona, yeah, it was, um, you know, a lot of the product sampling and testing takes place at the, at the border. So Chinese customs would take some samples and that would be quite infrequent and, and just every now and then they just take a random sample. We would also hold back retention samples as well of our products just to make sure that if anything goes wrong, we can mm -hmm. see we've got our own retention samples. But um, immediately those, um, the custom sampling increased dramatically and it, and it was higher in frequency and higher in quantity as well. Mm -hmm. um, just passing through borders. So the whole of China sort of shut down and our, our truck drivers, if they're driving from you know, Hernan province to Zhejiang province, which is where um, Shanghai is, you know, have to pass through you know, three or four different provinces. They had to have sort of 
11 um, or 12 pieces of, of um, paper of documentation just to pass through each border. So it slowed right down. And as I said, this was actually a really good thing for our company. I mean, our company was built on control and transparency and on supply chain. So it's really built in our, you know, it's in our company's DNA. So whilst, it, you know, although it was really hard and, and challenging, it was something that we could do. And that really set us apart from our competitors. A lot of the other foreign importers or, you know, exporters exporting, you know, fresh produce, they, you know, they just focus on the brand side of the story and on the sales. And when there was huge disruption in the supply chain and logistics, they just, you know, threw their hands up in the air and said, let's just forget about it and pulled out. So there was a real void of quality foreign products in Australia, in China, and there still is. And um, that's been a really good thing for us. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's really uh, pretty different from the situation that we experience in, in, in Europe and, and especially here in the US where uh, there's the lack of personnel kind of relaxed the, the, the quality control instead of uh, uh, increasing the documentation and the processes like you just explained. So it's, a, it's a pretty interesting to see the differences as well. Uh, now, um, coming back to the supply side of your business, um, again, we saw that um, uh, some shifts of demand um, more than shifts of demand, some uh, shifts of, of availability of foods uh, were due to temporary closures of, for example, meat processing facilities. Um, and so are there any specific ingredients or food items in your portfolio that were struck by either supply shortages or the mismatch between supply and demand? Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So we went through a really interesting couple of months where, um, like I said, um, the first, you know, the, the, the coronavirus, the outbreak was in China. So immediately China shut down. And so all of our challenges were in China, um, you know, logistically, which, you know, what I described about you know, transporting food, more samples at the border, um, more testing, things like that. Then coronavirus actually, you know, was uh, exported around the world. And, um, and our problems suddenly switched. China started opening up and it became easy to do business there. But then China started shutting down to the rest of the world. So getting product into China was, was more difficult. And then um, the key thing about our business is we, we specialise in short shelf life perishable foods. Mm -hmm. So we air freight most of our, our, our produce to China. And um, I think somewhere around you know, 90 to 98% of Australian um, fresh food perishables, or I think just exports, are actually um, exported in the belly of passenger planes to China. Uh -huh. um, and uh, so obviously passenger planes just stopped. Uh -huh. They went, uh, yeah, ceased. And so there was a real stage where you know, we are paying sort of 80 cents per kilo um, to fly, you know, from Sydney to, to China. Um, and then that price skyrocketed to $3.60 per kilo. So it made things very difficult. Then the Australian government had to intervene and they've uh, created a number of dedicated air freight, you know, cargo routes between 
Australia and China and, you know, another a couple of our key export markets in Singapore and Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, and those sort of countries. So that's made a huge uh, difference and the price has come right back to about $1.10 per kilo. So that's been fantastic. The government, Australian government has done a really good job here. Um, they acted very quickly and decisively. So that's been fantastic. It's kept the export businesses alive here in, in China, um, oh, in Australia. And um, so, you know, we've been able to maintain our, you know, short shelf life perishables um, business, which has been fantastic. But at the same time, you know, it's made us recognize that we probably need an, a plan B and C in terms of the type of products we send to China. So we're now mm -hmm. looking, we're now doing a few longer um, shelf life uh, food products and we're shipping them to China just to have diversify that risk. Yeah. yeah. And this brings me to, uh, uh, let's say, the, the last part of the podcast, uh, the, the future outlook. So uh, the first um, question about the future is uh, what do you think you can do as a distributor um, to be better prepared to uh, uh, if the next emergency hits? Like you, you mentioned the diversification of your food portfolio. Are there any other things you, uh, you think are important to, to be better prepared? Yeah, I think you, in, to be a distributor or in the supply chain, you need a plan A, B, C, and D. I mean, uh, particularly when you're in short shelf life perishables, you know, I heard someone say the other day, long and wrong in fresh can turn bad very quickly. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I think you need, to, you need to manage your risk between you know, short shelf life perishables and sort of your, your longer shelf life you know, frozen commodities. Then you've got to have a number of different, um, you know, ways to import or, you know, we've got three importing hubs where we can import. So that was good. And like I said, our, our supply chain was actually built on risk management. That's how we started. So that's been a good thing for our company. Um, and look, I don't know much about the US um, and I'm not claiming to be an expert on the US, but what we're seeing and what China, you know, our Chinese customers are seeing is, is really devastating, you know, with slaughtering all the, um, all the pigs and milk, and milk getting poured down the drain and, and this, and, you know, potatoes getting buried and all this sort of stuff. It's just devastating. Mm -hmm. and, um, it's just something that China can't fathom. They actually just don't understand that. And everyone keeps on writing to me saying, hey, like sending me a, a video of milk getting poured down the drain from the US and saying, hey, can we buy this milk? Can we get it? We've got mm. so many mouths to feed. Um, wow. we'll, we'll take it. And, and then, you know, like again, I, I don't understand the Chinese, uh, the American food system that well because I'm here in Australia and I you know, specialise, you know, Australia mm -hmm. and China. But from my basic understanding, it just seems like this centralised model just doesn't work anymore. So I think decentralization is just going to be, is, is going to be um, hugely necessary in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you guys are the blockchain experts and you understand the whole difference between centralized and decentralized. So yeah. there are a lot of risks in centralization. You know, if, if, and then we're seeing that right now in the food supply chain. If one processing facility or abattoir um, goes, goes down or one, you know, one big retail, you know, customer like a McDonald's or, you know, KFC or something goes down, then it has huge um, influences right down the supply chain mm -hmm. all the way to the farmer and there's just no plan B. Yeah. And, and that, just, that just astounds me. Um, and I know why it makes a lot of sense in a capitalist system 
um, to be bigger and better and huge. And, you know, we'll be the biggest potato farm in America, selling to the biggest processing facility in America, selling to the biggest retail chip buyer, you know, to make chips. But you only need one of those elements to break and it affects everything. Yeah. So um, look again, I, I don't claim to, to be an expert, but I think decentralization and having plan A, B and C is just, you've, you've just got to do it. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, everyone, you know, that's one of the first sayings you learn, you know, when you're speaking English, um, when you're young, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. It's too, and- commit to one thing and that's centralization and we've just seen an explosion of centralization in almost every industry around the world and it's just mm-hmm. it's it's a dangerous model yeah absolutely too risky and, and so you you mentioned uh some of the technologies like a blockchain that would enable decentralization uh are there any other technologies uh or, or technological advances that you think might help um, in diversifying business model, in uh, decentralized, uh, in decentralizing and de-risking uh, the business model. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're talking about um, on the risk side of, of things um, with blockchain. Uh, obviously, decentralization uh, in blockchain really enables that. A, a you know a way to spread the risk in a number of different you know locations and, and places. So. But on the opportunity side is there's no reason why with the speed of communication technology these days, you, you can't have a system where it's, hey, our, um, our potato buyer just, you know, pulled out for whatever reason can, um, you know, and you send it, you know, send that message off on some sort of a database. Who wants to buy these potatoes? And, you know, there, there it goes. So I think about having a platform where it's, um, you know, it's just technology-enabled platform where you're where it's there's different channels, there's different buyers, mm-hmm. uh, there's different suppliers. So um, traditionally, that's always been been the case. You know, that's that's why markets and wet markets were created because it's you know a, a, the perfect place for supply and demand. But this whole centralized model of having exclusivity um, and total control takes away that um, supply and demand model. And um, I know there's a lot of efficiencies in that, but there's also huge risks as we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, to conclude, is there a um, uh, silver lining for the food system? Do you see uh, uh, any opportunity for um, some of the changes that you mentioned, uh, consumer cooking more, staying at home, um, uh, trying to get more transparency and trust? Um, are there any opportunities for these long-lasting changes to to stay and to improve the way we grow, distribute, and consume food? Yeah, I think there's lots of lots, um, and it depends on what you know what perspective you're taking. But I, I certainly do think, from the consumer's point of view, is we've seen, an, you know, just looking at China, a lot of positive um, positive changes from the Chinese consumer. I think, you know, if you think about what it takes, why it takes someone to change. Fear is a huge driver. It's a huge mm-hmm. motivator to make people change. And fear sinks deep. That goes right deep inside you. So that this is not a surface change. It's not a temporary change. This is a long-term change that no one's ever going to forget. So I think, um, you know, eating from home and cooking a bit more and spending time with the family and buying fresh produce and immunity, 
being more concerned about where your food comes from. Those sort of values are going to be very important uh, in comparison to, you know, this sort of convenience. I don't really care where it comes from. I uh, don't really care about the nutritional benefits, all those sort of things. Um, you know, we've seen that trend happening for, for some time, but certainly um, coronavirus has accelerated that. Um, I think from a, you know, if you jump onto the other side, you know, from the consumer side all the way to the, um, to the grower side, is as a grower, I think you really, you know, looking at the, the, um, the US system, I think you've got to sort of think about de-risking yourself a little bit and maybe not putting all your eggs in one basket or, you know, working with your processor or your buyer um, on a couple of different options on a plan A and plan B and discussing that. I think, you know, growers around the world have always been, you know, really, you know, they just want to grow something, sell it, make their money, and then they don't really care where it ends up. But I think growers now have to have more of a um, say and, and, be, and participate a little bit more about where their food ends up. Um, mm. So that not just from an interest point of view or building a brand point of view, but from a risk point of view as well. I think that's crucial. They've got to be part. They're in the food system, but they can't just be the first cog in the food system and the supply chain and then, and then you know, don't take any notice from, you know, from there. They have to have a bit more of a say, and I think that's going to happen both ways. The consumers are getting more interested about the provenance of their food, but we need the growers also to be a bit more interested and a bit more involved and participate in the supply chain as that food gets all the way to the consumer. So it's really two ways um, that I think there's going to be a bit of, um, you know, changes and silver linings. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. This, this was really, really uh, insightful. Um, where, where can listeners learn more about your company? Um, yeah, you can check out our website. It's www.jamestyler.com.au. So that's uh, T-Y-L-E-R. James Tyler, but um, I built that website myself and it was about five years old, so it's not the best place. So if anyone wants to um, reach out, happy to have an, you know, send me an email. Um, mm -hmm. That's james at jamestyler.com.au. Perfect. Thanks, James. Okay, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And you can find this episode and subscribe to the Know Your Food series on Apple Podcasts or on our website at rightbio slash podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.